How will higher labor costs influence the market for restaurant mergers and acquisitions? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Nick Cole, who heads restaurant finance for the Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group, or MUFG. Nick has years of experience lending to restaurants and talks in detail on his views of the current state of the industry. I like talking with lenders on the podcast because they have an interesting insight into the industry and its finances and have real money at stake in the outcome. In this episode, he talks about thinning margins and their impact on restaurant M&A. Nick talks about multiples for restaurant acquisitions and how much activity there is in the industry at the moment. Nick also talks about his outlook for next year, whether the run in M&A will continue, and whether he still likes casual dining. It's an interesting in-the-weeds episode of A Deeper Dive this week, so please have a listen. Okay, I am here with Nick Cole. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, all right, why don't you uh, tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do and, and how things are right now. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a banker. I work for MUFG Bank, which is maybe not a household name in the United States, but it's the largest bank in Japan. And, and uh, actually, I think it's the largest bank in the world that isn't headquartered in China. So it's, it's bigger than any U.S. bank, but uh, not necessarily a household name in the United States, but pretty significant uh, U.S. presence. And I'm, I started there in June after having spent 15 years at Wells Fargo and prior to that, 11 years at Bank of America. And I've been in and around financing restaurant companies for most of my banking career, so close to 25 years, and uh, and we're we're trying to build a, a business at MUFG financing restaurant companies similar to what I led at uh, at Wells Fargo. So I'm in charge of that effort, and uh, and so far we've we've had a lot of activity, and it's been fun. Mm-hmm. So now you do you focus primarily on on uh, franchisees and and uh, smaller chains or or uh, do this run the gamut? Who do you finance? Yeah, so we we really look at the industry as a whole. So anything and everything, and and we work with the biggest companies out there, the the largest franchisors and the national and international companies, as well as some of their smallest franchisees and everything in between. So we really see the whole world and cover the industry as a true top to bottom uh, vertical. Mm-hmm. I always like um, talking to bankers because you guys have, um, you're taking pretty big risks when you when you make a loan to to a restaurant company. And so obviously you're paying a lot of attention uh, to the state of things. And I as we go into 2022, and I think that there's just a lot of uncertainty heading into next year. We don't know how long inflation is going to be a problem. We don't know how long the supply chain is going to be a problem, which is related to the labor problem. We don't really know how where sales are going to go, you know, uh, you know, as things normalize. And now we have this new variant that's uh, may or may not cause some real problems. What, what are the biggest challenges that you see going into next year? So, you know, as, as a banker, like you said, we see, we see the world somewhat in totality and, uh, and have, you know, a lot of customers and can see depth in the industry. And we think of things when we look out at forecasts and think about our business plans, we think of things in economic cycle terms. So, you know, we're, we're used to the normal economic cycle of expansions turning to recessions, turning back to expansion. So 
probably the biggest challenge right now is is sorting through a set of circumstances that doesn't fit that mold, <laughs> the mold that we're used to looking at for decades. So we're trying to figure out what is it about what we're dealing with now that, you know, can inform, you know, how we look at 2022 without any game plan to look at. So, you know, like normal things, like you mentioned, inflation pressures and the labor stuff you're talking about. Well, you know, you're used to thinking about labor getting tight at the end of an economic expansion, right? But, you know, why is labor tight today? You know, do have we reached full employment? Um, you know, it's an interesting question because I, I don't think we have personally reached the state of full employment. I think, you know, uh, my understanding, like the, you know, the Department of Labor would generally, they used to measure the state of full employment at roughly 5% unemployment. I think they've revised that over time and, and seen it closer to 4% or 4.5%. And the last unemployment numbers we have just dipped below the 5% level. So we're not far off of that measure of full employment, but a half a percent is a lot of people. So there's still some give. But but I think the weird factor that we're looking at today is how many people are out there who aren't part of the labor force, but could be because unemployment statistics only measure people who are actively looking for work. So what is going on out there that has it? It seems to be that there's a, a significant percentage of people under the age of 30 who have found a path to retirement. Um, and now, I don't, God bless them if they can kind of keep that up for the next 50 years, but I'm not sure that they can. So, you know, we're, we're trying to gauge, you know, how quickly does some of that normalize? Well, at the same time, kind of looking out and wondering, well, what is this next variant going to do? Because the Delta variant had an impact. Um, when it rolled through in the fall. And, you know, so every wave like has some impact, you know, hopefully less than, you know, the initial lockdown phase of, you know, 2020, but, you know, it, it all kind of factors in, mm -hmm. but, you know, like trying to figure out what the business model is for, you know, circumstances that we've never seen before. That's, that's very challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know how you value the restaurant space at, right now in, in this day and age. I, I, it, would, it would give me headaches. However, that said, valuations actually seem to be very strong um, for franchisees. For instance, some, uh, some brands can, uh, can attract uh, 10 <clears throat> times multiples, which I don't know I, if you've seen that before. I've never, I've never heard of it before just uh, now. Um, and, uh, you know, and then firehouse subs was just bought for 20. That's not entirely unprecedented, but, um, you know, but it's still fairly rare. So it, it seems like a lot of people that are jumping in and, and, and making deals and, and making these, uh, making these decisions are betting on an industry that is going to not only be relatively safe, but is going to be stronger going forward. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think, well, you know, the conversation about valuations is always complicated because, mm -hmm. you know, it always depends what sort of business you're looking at and what sort of history you're looking at and whether you're thinking of it off of a trailing number or a future number. And, you know, valuations typically, unless it's a franchisee business, are based on a, a future expectation, not a trailing expectation. So, so you're right, like built into some of these things like the firehouse subs acquisition or some of the IPOs that have happened are, are based on an expectation that the future is pretty good. 
normally valuations in the restaurant industry follow the economic cycle. In other words, restaurants being a consumer discretionary cyclical kind of industry, they typically are first in a recession, first out of a recession, and typically the IPOs happen in those first two to three years coming out of a recession at the early stage of an expansion because the expectation is that you're going to see more better years in front of you than you had behind you. And that's a good time to invest in a consumer cyclical business. It, it seems to be that valuations are operating under that general mm-hmm. expectation that we had a pullback and now we're going to see growth again for the industry in general. So we've had IPOs, which generally means public equity markets think that we're in a better time. And for the industry, you know, when you just think about the supply and demand aspects of the industry, well, there is a significant amount of supply that's gone away and still going away. Most of that is independent restaurant operators who couldn't make it through the pandemic. And that sort of clears the way for growth stories going forward and kind of an advantage for the chains and the bigger companies as we look to the future. Um, But, you know, valuations are also looking like a little bit higher just because of how you think about future versus past performance, past being for some types of businesses, not that strong and, and, uh, and for other types overly inflated. So depending on how you think about that. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the sales environment? Cause the, the other issue that always gets me is, is that, you know, the industry has raised, you know, raised prices quite a bit over yeah. the past. I mean, they're, you know, much of the, in fact, a lot of the industries come back this year has been price driven rather yeah. than traffic driven. Um, but I mean, we don't really see any evidence as of yet that there's this broad rejection of, of, uh, of, of higher prices on the part of the consumer. The consumer seems to be pretty willing to pay for it or maybe they're not eating or who knows what they're doing because they're not going to value. So what do you make of that from, from, from a lending perspective? Do you think the industry has more pricing power going forward? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what's sort of interesting about the pricing environment that, you know, certainly when you kind of look at recent numbers in particular, restaurant companies are doing a little bit better job right now, offsetting increased labor with price increases than I thought, right. Mm -hmm. They're still giving up some margin, uh, but it's been a little bit better than what I expected to see. So that so that pricing ability, um, you know, is pretty good right now, which is which is favorable to the industry. I think one of the interesting measures that we sort of track when we look at the industry and ability for pricing is, um, you know, the relative cost of food at home versus food away from home. And you've probably seen those those graphs. Well, you know, for a long period of time, food away from home, um, you know, from the sort of 2014-2018 time period, food away from home inflation rate was much higher than food at home. So, you know, the the you know the gap between the two became pretty dramatic. That completely flipped, um, you know, in the last couple of years. So, food at home has actually uh, gone at higher inflation rate than food away from home. So, um, so even if, you know, the restaurant companies are increasing pricing, well, relative to eating at home, um, it's looking more attractive to consumers, relatively speaking. So 
that generally, when you follow those two graphs, you know, away and at home, that generally kind of tells you um, a little bit about pricing power. And that's very much been in the favor of, of but, you know, also just as the, 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 the minimum wage increases and the cost of entry level labor increases, well, you know, studies would show that the percentage that, you know, that end of the economy pays towards eating out is relatively high. You know, they, they spend a fair amount of money. So, you know, those are your customers. They're making more money. They're spending more money and they don't find it to be a particular bargain to eat at home. Right. It's, it is easier for easy to forget that the lower income, lower and middle class consumers have actually done pretty well in an environment like this when you see broad wage growth and and a lot of government stimulus. And so, you know, they've, they've had a lot of money and it's easy to forget that, 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 that incomes have, have really increased and that's going to help fuel, fuel a lot of this or sort of going forward. So it should be pretty decent. So one, one of the things that I want to ask you is you're pretty bullish on casual dining. Are you, the last time I talked to you, you said you were bullish. I don't know if anything has happened in the past couple of weeks to change your mind, but are you still uh, pretty positive on casual dining going forward? Yeah, I think like in the short term, um, you know, casual dining didn't see the lift that fast food did during the pandemic year. So they're still building back. So when you sit here today in a normalizing environment, you would say casual dining has more upside to their business than history would indicate, whereas QSR would have probably more downside to their business than history would indicate if your expectation is normalizing and reversion to the mean. So in that sense, I would say restaurant um, uh, full service stuff has a little bit more wind in their sails in a normalizing environment. I think the other factor is like what we talked about, like the restaurant closures, um, more heavily weighted towards full service dining operations and independence. So, you know, the full service chains probably have the best supply demand disruption working in their favor, you know, over the next few years. So both of those things, you know, I think sort of lend themselves to an environment that's pretty good for full service chains. That being said, you know, they're the ones who are going to see most impact when there's a new variant wave and we have to kind of go back to putting on masks or thinking about whether we want to be out in public or not. So, you know, that vulnerability exists. So my bullishness was, you know, based on a normalizing, you know, environment, <laughs> but, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I, we didn't know about the, uh, when we talked at the conference last month, we didn't know about the Omicron variant coming around. So, so that's definitely a factor. Yeah. I, I will, I will um, uh, interject with my, my, opinion on this and maybe it's again colored because i'm you know i i live in minnesota where we are having a you know where we are in the midst still of a pretty bad surge not mm -hmm. as worse as it was last winter but it's still pretty significant i i can't tell a difference but as far as as far as anywhere i go you can you couldn't even tell i was at a concert last night of course we had to be vaxxed to get in but yeah, I it's it's just not I, I don't really see any change in activity. And I think that my view on this going forward is I don't think that the consumer is really that eager to see a return of the shutdowns. And I think if we're going if we look at the restaurant space, probably the biggest concern I would have and is that it prolongs the labor challenge to me. That's where I sort of see the biggest risk from yeah. the restaurant space is not necessarily in the demand side. I think people have proven 
pretty well, actually, that they love going to restaurants and they're willing <laughs> to actually risk uh, their health to do so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, 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 it's the labor issue that I, I guess gives me gives a little pause. Yeah, I think I think the only thing that I would say maybe, you know, to, to think about your point, well, I agree, like, I, I don't think it's either politically appealing or personal habit appealing to like think about the lockdown phase of a year ago like that wasn't fun right right but at the same time like you know we've before this new variant we were in a world where if the virus is something you worried about you had the option to be vaccinated right so you could go to a concert you're vaccinated and it's fine and and if you're not inclined to worry and you weren't vaccinated well you weren't inclined to worry anyway so you know we had a world where people were generally amenable to going out mm-hmm. a variant that evades the vaccine um which we don't know yet right i mean uh, and, and or how quickly one can you know get a new vaccine to combat it like that adds a wrinkle right to those people mm-hmm. who are inclined to worry who are today vaccinated, but finding out that maybe that doesn't help, right? So, so that might you know affect the demand side a little bit. But but I do agree with you that it you know continues the disruption around labor. I mean, one of the interesting things about labor, you know, is is just the dislocation in this economy that has moved labor around. Not just the people who have decided that they're going to sit on the sidelines for some period of time, but just the movement of labor around. Like I was listening to an interesting podcast the other day talking about Amazon and its challenges and opportunities during the pandemic. And one of the interesting things is, you know, Amazon is a big employer of minimum wage people and they added 500,000 um, entry level people to their staff during the pandemic. Well, 500,000 people is a huge number you think about that relative, like the restaurant industry employs something in the neighborhood of nine and a half, 10 million people. So that's the equivalent of 5% of the restaurant industry workforce. And then you think about it in terms of the restaurant industry has the highest percentage of entry level minimum wage employees of any industry, like roughly a third to 40%, depending on how you look at it, of restaurant industry workers. So if Amazon's hiring 500,000 entry-level people in the industry, restaurant industry employs, call it three and a half million entry-level people. And if you think of entry-level labor as a market share game, well, you're going to take from the biggest market share, which is the restaurant industry, right? So now a lot of people are going to try working at Amazon and see if they like it better than working at a fast food restaurant. Some of them are going to decide they do, but I think some of them are going to decide they don't, right? So there's just this state of disruption that we're seeing of things moving around in the economy. And will Amazon, you know, they were staffing up to meet the surge of demand that they saw during the pandemic. I mean, who didn't order a lot more stuff from Amazon Prime in the last year than they ever have, right? So, you know, will that continue? Uh, You know, Amazon shareholders hope that it does. But, you know, like, all these disruption things that move entry-level labor to different parts of the economy affect the restaurant industry more than any other industry. Right. So I think that's part of what our industry is dealing with. Right. And it's uh, it's also easy to forget that if you're a low-wage worker in today's market, actually in almost any, but if you're a, if you're a, you have more options available to you today than you've ever had. I mean, you, Amazon is a perfect example. 
but you could drive for Uber or, or one of the delivery yeah. companies. You could, um, you know, there are a number of different ways now where you can actually just go out and make your own living. And many people are actually choosing to do that. You can make a fair yeah. bit of money without actually having a job in today's economy, which was not uh, the case when I was certainly growing up. You know, we have other natural challenges such as immigration, I suppose. And, and um, you know, and then the decline of the number of the, the decline in the teenage workforce as well. The fact that fewer teenagers are working today than, you know, 20 years ago. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a tough environment and, you know, I mean, so how, from your standpoint as a banker, what do you think that restaurants should do going forward? Like if you're, how should they, address, what would you like to see? How would you like to see them address this? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think first of all, like um, particularly QSR operators more than any other, but, you know, the restaurant industry is going to have to face this idea of how do I attract employees with more tools in my repertoire than simply uh, hourly wage? Um, because there are a lot of other reasons why employees are moving around in this environment and trying to figure out there's something real about this being a time for contemplation and reflection and wondering what you want out of your work life and is there something better out there for you so you know if if i were running a restaurant company the first thing i do well first i would find you know what's the nearest uh, you know amazon uh <laughs> fulfillment center to my restaurants <laughs> and what are they doing to add staff and how are people finding that workplace environment um, and what can I do better? I think one of the things that Amazon does pretty well is they sort of engineer entry-level jobs to require very little training that they, they really kind of engineer it so that you can kind of get up to speed almost immediately and thinking about the industry and how to quickly to get staffed and manage and thinking about other ways to appeal to employees beyond just the wage, you have to figure all that stuff out. And then I, I think the other sort of pitfall is that um, you can increase pricing to offset, but you gotta be careful because at some point, you know, you could get ahead of yourself. And uh, I've seen the biggest, I've seen the biggest disasters, uh, you know, in the, in the business of, of people who have, suddenly found themselves um, not providing the type of value proposition to their customers that their customers expect and trying to sort of figure out how to get those customers back in the door. Like when you when you found yourself outside of the pricing appetite of your customer base, that's hard to fix. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be businesses that, you know, drive pricing now and then, then you know, it, it, they get ahead of themselves. And you know, and you know, as a consumer, like you may go to a restaurant a couple times a month, maybe more if it's fast food, you know, but you're not going there every day and, and you're not and you're sort of building an impression over time about the value of what you're getting versus other things. And and you're going to make your pricing choices and your value choices over a period of time. It's not immediate. So they may not feel the effect of the price increases that they take today until sometime six months from now. And, uh, and then you'll find out that like, well, maybe I got to get back to discounting again and try to figure mm -hmm. that out. So I think it's a very difficult time to sort of manage those, those uh, uh, sort of competing issues. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the pricing issue is is definitely one of the big questions going forward to me is, you know, what what ultimately is the impact on pricing? And at the moment, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, it's not uh, the way uh, grocers are are treating their prices as right now is very similar. And so, you know, consumers still have to eat and people have more money. But at some point, that value becomes a question. And if consumers ultimately start looking at how much they're spending on restaurants and they will, will, will it's pretty, you know, it's an yeah. easy thing to cut back. Yeah. Um, and and it's definitely happened before. But I want to want to ask, uh, I want to shift a little bit and talk a little bit about M&A because we haven't talked about that at all. Um, pretty is uh, pretty heavy demand this year for um, uh, to, to buy restaurants. Is it you expect that to, to uh, continue into next year? Um, so I expect that to continue over the long term. I, I would expect that it maybe softens a little bit uh, in the first quarter, or maybe for a short period of time, simply because, um, you know, there's a correlation between business performance and M&A activity. Yeah. Sellers don't like to sell off of a down quarter, down month, down year, right? You know, they, they're hoping to get the best price. So, and, and you know, what we see today, like, you know, when you look at the numbers in September and October, and we haven't seen much November yet, but uh, we will pretty soon, like, you know, margins are down. So, mm-hmm. you know, businesses are feeling a little bit of that inflation pressure offset, like I said, by some pricing and doing better than maybe I thought, but business results are down. And I think will be down in the fourth quarter and the first quarter compared to what they were, which does tend to put a little bit of a damper on M&A activity. But I think there are a lot of things sort of driving M&A activity in the industry that aren't short term and have been going on for some time. So I think the general underpinnings of transaction activity remain, even if it sort of, even if we take a little bit of a short term pause, Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's what I would see. And so I would, I would see that 2022, probably slower at the start of the year than maybe this year was, but picking up as the year goes on and probably pretty similar um, year over year in terms of total transaction activity. Right. What, what are some of those issues that are underpinning the M&A activity that beyond obviously uh, margins? Yeah, it depends, you know, which part of the industry you look in, but um, you know, I would say just from a macro basis, the restaurant industry is still a fairly immature industry. If you sort of, look at industries that you consider to be mature. Um, You know, generally they're characterized by growth that is at or below the growth of the general GDP economy and industries that are generally consolidated around relatively few, very large companies. And when you look at the restaurant industry, it doesn't have those characteristics, you know, other than a recession year, it has pretty consistently grown at a faster pace than the GDP over time and, and continues to sort of perform at a faster pace than GDP, uh, particularly during economic growth phases. Um, it's also very fragmented. Um, you know, we don't have, um, you know, when you, when you kind of think about it, like in historical terms, like you think about the auto industry, like, it, you know, when when they figured out how to put a combustion engine on a on a horse carriage back in the late 1800s, between 1880, 1890, uh, well, General Motors, I think, was founded in 1908. And basically, the industry was fully consolidated into three companies by 1930. So in less than 50 years, really less than 40 years, 
an industry was born and achieved maturity in roughly 40 years. Well, if you look at the restaurant industry, while some of the brands were formed before 1950, before World War II, mostly the chain restaurant business, that is franchising and building out multiple locations, that didn't really occur until the um, Interstate Highway Act of 1956, which sort of drove that industry growth. So late 50s to 60s, and then you know you look at from brand to brand, a lot of them were started 70s and 80s. Um, so very fragmented, still relatively young industry. I think there are fewer than 40 companies out there with, uh, with more than 5 billion in sales. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not a mature industry. So it is still a consolidating transaction play and will be for some time. Mm -hmm even more so within the brands when you're looking at franchisee businesses where thinking again about that history, like those businesses started in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Well, the first generation owner is now turning over that business to their kids or selling that business because their kids don't want to run a restaurant business. So all the generational turnover that's happening within all those brands has been going on really for the last 10 years, but is going to continue for the next 10 years like that. And on all the brands, you need, you kind of look around at the brand dynamics. They're all trying to figure out how to get that next generation of owner in who has the energy to grow and build new stores and do things that the, the older generation is now not interested in anymore. So, you know, every franchisor of a national brand will tell you that's been one of their challenges is trying to turn over the base of franchisees, get some new blood into the brand and move it forward. So all of those things are driving M&A activity and are going to for a while, which is why, you know, when I started in this business, there are maybe two or three banks that would make a loan to a restaurant company. And now there are, you know, I don't know, 30 that showed up at the most recent conference. Like, that's why all of these banks like are looking at this industry and thinking like, well, we used to hate lending to restaurant businesses, but you know what? Like they need capital and there's transaction activity and we need to grow our balance sheet. So this is the place to go. So there's available capital. There are a lot of driving forces behind consolidation and the industry is huge and still incredibly fragmented. All those things mean this is going to be a rich M&A environment for, until I retire for sure and probably well beyond. Yeah, super. <clears throat> this was great, Nick. Really appreciate you joining uh, me on the podcast this week. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Kimberly Kazmarek. Our work by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. Thank you.